Alright, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning if you have your Bibles and uh, trust that you do. I pray this morning that whatever this cold or sickness is, this cough that I can't seem to shake, I pray that it doesn't um, become too much of a distraction and that the Lord is uh, gracious to speak clearly from His Word this morning as we continue in our study of 1 Corinthians 9. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19 this morning, 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19. These are the words of God. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews, to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. The text before us highlights a great paradox of the Christian life. The Christian is free from all men in Christ. But because of his freedom in Christ, he is made a servant unto all men. Martin Luther summed up this paradox in the introduction to his tract on the freedom of the Christian. That's the title of it. It was written in 1520. Luther said, quote, A Christian is an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is an utterly dutiful man, servant of all, subject to all. How can these two seemingly contradictory statements both be true? That we are, on the one hand, free from all men, but on the other hand, we're a servant to all men. On the one hand, we have freedom in Christ, and we have liberties that abound, but on the other hand, we are subject to condescend and to serve everyone else. Well, these two truths are so because of the nature of Christ's work for us and in us. Christ has freely offered himself. He has willingly come and liberated us from the bondage of sin, condemnation, and death. And He is the one who has made us free. And now we who are free in Christ are called to become servants of the world even as Christ made Himself a servant of the world. We are to go into the world as prisoners who have been released from their chains and we are to tell those still imprisoned where they too can find liberty. This passage is embedded in a broader conversation about the use of our Christian liberties. Well, what is the connection here? What, what is Paul seeking to tell us when he, when he talks about how he has become a servant to all men? connection is this. If we are going to live our lives for the purpose of serving the world by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we must learn to forsake our liberties so that we can be the best servants that we can be. Later in this passage, Paul will say, this I do Not for my own sake, not for the the, the sake of indulging in my liberties, not for exercising my rights, not so I can be comfortable, fat, and happy, but this I do for the gospel. If we're going to do all things for the gospel, that will mean disciplining ourselves and limiting our liberties so that we can be profitable servants for the furtherance of Christ's gospel. You know that in chapter 9, Paul is exemplifying himself as one who foregoes his liberties. In these verses, verses 19 through 24, 23, what Paul is doing is he's broadening the horizons of this example. 
Thus far, he's limited his example to the specific right of ministers to receive financial remuneration. Um, Verses 1 through 14, what did Paul do? He exhaustively proved that ministers have the right to be paid for their labors. And then in verses 15 through 18, he, he then went and turned around and showed how he didn't partake of that right. But now, verses 19 through 23, he's going to expand the conversation and he's going to demonstrate that financial compensation was not the only right from which he abstained. That was just one example. In fact, he regularly chose to forego certain liberties when so doing would benefit the spread of the gospel. He was natural for Paul. Paul did, Paul did not, the default position of the Apostle Paul was not my rights, my liberties. The default position of the Apostle Paul was what's going to be best for the gospel. Nothing was more important to Paul than the propagation of Christ's gospel. He wanted to go to heaven and he wanted to take as many people with him when he went. And if that meant living in such a way that required him to give up certain things that he enjoyed and forsake certain comforts, then so be it. Because Paul desired to serve people with the gospel more than he desired to indulge in himself. Is that true of you? As a Christian, is that true of you? Is your ultimate joy and is your ultimate aim, what, when you wake up in the morning, uh, when you go to bed at night, when you, when, when you have a, a, a lull and you have some free time, and, or, or you're going out and about in the community, or you're, you're scheduling your week out in advance, what, what, what do you use? What's the barometer that helps you to make those decisions? Is it, where can I find times for me to enjoy myself and do pleasurable activities and live for myself? Or is it, how can I live so that the gospel is preached through me and proclaimed and spread through everything that I do? As Paul explains this desire to serve the world with the gospel and the impact that it has on the way we view our Christian liberties, may God grant us this passion to be used of God to bring the glorious message of salvation to lost souls. In many ways, this text is is a call for us to share in the desires of the Apostle Paul to be used to, to the effect of salvation. And may we embrace this paradox, uh, this paradox that we are totally free in Christ, yet obligated by His grace to serve the world with the gospel. <clears throat> Three things I want you to see from this text, very simple. Beginning in verse 19, I want you to see first the principle. The principle. Paul begins verse 19 and he says, For though I be free from all men. Here he is picking up from where he left off in verse 1. In verse 1 he asks, Am I not free? And now he's going to answer that question. Absolutely I'm free. The freedom spoken of here is a freedom in Christ. And if Christ is your master, then you are free from the lordship of men. Your conscience answers to God alone. You are not under any obligation whatsoever to conform your behavior to the preferences or opinions of others. Moreover, you have liberty to, in Christ to enjoy the good gifts that God gives you. You are free. And Paul concedes this truth. He says, though I am free from all men... Then he adds a very important qualification to this. For though I am free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all. By nature, I'm free, but I have made myself. I have subjected myself. I have humbled myself. And I have made myself. I've become the servant of all that I might gain the more. Though there is a sense in which Paul is not obligated to subject himself to others. He does so willingly so that he might win them with the gospel. When Paul says that I might gain the more, he's not talking about winning followers for himself or winning the approval of man. Paul's chief aim is to win souls to Christ. And to this end, he will gladly forego his liberties, and he will become a servant unto all. Paul was willing to modify his habits, to alter his customs, 
to adapt his lifestyle if any of those things may cause someone to stumble and hinder them from coming to Christ through the message that he preached. If we are going to be witnesses for Christ, (coughs) we must learn to put others before ourselves. We must have a true and authentic love for the lost (coughs) that compels us to go to them with the glorious message of salvation. Some Christians are only willing to witness to the lost when it's easy and when it costs them nothing. See, it's easy to witness to that coworker who grew up in the same town as you and shares your culture and shares your interests and shares your political views. You don't have to sacrifice very much to, to witness to that person. You have so much common ground to relate to that person. You don't have to change anything, really. You, you naturally have a connection with them. But what about that person in your life? Coworker, family member, friend? you don't have much in common with. You grew up in the South. They're from New England. You're a conservative. They're a liberal. You're white. They're black. If you're going to reach that person with the gospel, you're going to have to set aside those differences. You're going to have to conscientiously make sure that you're not being unnecessarily offensive so that you don't hinder the message that you're trying to share with them. You're going to have to become a servant to that person. That's what Paul says in chapter 9. I've made myself a servant unto all in order to win them to the gospel of Christ. Well, you say, are there limitations on this accommodating of ourselves to others? Of course there are. Of course there are. I'm in no way, shape, or form telling you that you need to become a chameleon for Christ. And just do whatever it takes and adopt all sorts of pragmatic programs. And we just need to make our church look like the world in order to attract carnality. What you win them with, you win them too. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, And here's essentially where the difference is. Where the limitation is. The accommodation must be a matter of indifference, not morality. When you accommodate yourself to someone for the sake of winning them with the gospel, it must be a matter of indifference, not a matter of morality. Paul is not teaching us that we need to become sinful in order to reach sinners. He's not teaching us that we need to participate in things that the Bible overtly condemns in order to fit in. And and we've all heard it. You know, well, Jesus hung out with, with drunkards and tax collectors and sinners. Well, I think hung out is a little too colloquial and informal for for what he did there. But yes, it is true that he had fellowship and he ate with tax collectors and sinners. But he never, not a single time, partook of their sins. Nor does this text teach us that we need to cave in to the terms of the legalist. What do I mean by that? Well, see, Paul will tell the Corinthians that he catered to certain Jewish customs in order to reach the Jews. But he did so out of respect to them, so as not to cause a stumbling block, not because he believed that those customs were morally binding in the New Covenant. Let me give you an illustration. If you wanted to reach a Muslim with the gospel, and you... You offered to take them out to eat and they accepted your invitation and you go out to a restaurant. You probably shouldn't order pork tenderloin and a glass of wine. And the reason why you shouldn't is not because you think there's anything immoral about such a meal. You're not abstaining from that meal and conceding to the Muslim and saying, yes, you're right, it would be sinful if I ate that. No, the reason why you're abstaining from that meal is because it would place an immediate stumbling block between you and the Muslim and it would hinder your ability to reach him with the gospel. There's nothing sinful about such a meal, but there's also nothing sinful about abstaining from such a meal. It's a liberty. And Paul's whole point in this section of 1 Corinthians is that we ought to cheerfully give up such liberties. I don't care if pork tenderloin is your favorite supper menu item. 
You abstain from it if it would cause a stumbling block. We cheerfully give up these liberties when so doing allows us to bring more glory to God and reach the lost with Christ. So yes, our freedom in Christ makes us a servant to all, but that servanthood has limitations. Namely, we only accommodate ourselves on matters of indifference, areas where we have the liberty in Christ to partake or abstain. We don't accommodate to the point of sinning, nor do we accommodate to the point of calling something sin that isn't sin. It's important. This is Paul's principle. Be a servant to all that you might gain them with the gospel. Be a servant to all that you might gain them with the gospel. <clears throat> but I want us to now look at how Paul lived out this principle in his life and in his ministry. And he gives us three specific cases where he implements this principle. So we've seen the principle. Secondly, verses 20 through 22, I want you to see the practice. Verse 20, he says, And unto the Jews I became as a Jew. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, this statement might seem a little bit odd. For starters, what do you mean you became as a Jew, Paul? You are a Jew. To that, Paul would reply, Yes, ethnically I may be Jewish, but spiritually I am in Christ. And in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek. Ethnicity is nothing. The gospel transcends those barriers, and it forms one people in Christ. Paul knows that. The Jews do not know that. And Paul is trying to reach a group of people who, for them, ethnicity is everything. Culture is everything. Their whole religion is bound up in keeping the customs and traditions of their people. Because Paul wanted to win them with the gospel, he was willing to accommodate himself to them and behave in such a way that wouldn't cause needless offense. He clarifies when he says, I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews. And then he says, to them that are under the law. He's not talking about a different group of people. He's talking about the Jews. The Jews were the people that were under the law. And he says, to them that were under the law, as under the law, I became as one under the law. And we, we understand this to be an explanatory phrase. Paul was willing to keep the ceremonial law of the Jews when he was ministering to the Jews, not because it was morally obligatory, but because it would allow him to share the gospel with the Jews without needless offense. If Paul pulled up in a synagogue and he just began to tell them how oh, all that ceremonial law, that's all just done away with in Christ. You don't need to keep that. Christ gives you freedom from the law. You don't have to observe the feast days. You don't have to keep the dietary restrictions. You don't have to keep the, the, the fabric laws and different the, 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 the um, agricultural laws. That would have immediately caused them to just close their ears and quit listening to him. And though that's true, that's not the primary thing that Paul was trying to reach them with. Because believing that you're free from the ceremonial law is not what saves you. It's Christ that saves you. He's trying to preach Christ to them. We'll get to the ceremonial laws later. We'll get to the one people in Christ later. We'll get to the there is no Jew, there is no Greek later. But right now, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to preach Christ to you. I'm trying to let you see and, I'm, and let you understand that the Messiah has come. And his name is Jesus. And he's died on the cross for sinners. And he was raised the third day. And you need to believe in him and in him alone and trust him. That you might be justified by faith. When Paul was around the Jews, yeah, he ate a kosher diet. He observed the feast days. He kept their customs, even though he had the Christian liberty to not do those things. But he knew that if he flaunted this Christian liberty, <coughs> the Jews wouldn't listen to anything he had to say about the gospel. And here's something else we know. The gospel is offensive enough. Because the Jews stoned him. The Jews left him for dead. Not because he refused to keep the ceremonial laws. <laughs> the gospel is plenty offensive to lost people. We don't have to do anything else to add unnecessary offense on top of that. 
So Paul was willing to become their servant, to live as they lived, so that he might have the opportunity to preach Christ to them. Say, but wait a minute, Paul, what about all those things you said in Galatians about Christians being freed from the law and how we ought not to submit to the yoke of slavery? Now you're saying that you keep the law when you're around the Jews? Remember the principle. Remember the principle. In Galatians, Paul was dealing with the Judaizers. Paul was dealing with false teachers who taught that keeping the ceremonial law was required for the salvation of the Gentiles. They were teaching that if the Gentiles wanted to become Christians, they had to first become Jews. And Paul emphatically stood against this heresy. It was a denial of the gospel to teach that you are saved through law-keeping. But Paul doesn't observe the law because he thinks it's necessary for salvation. He does it in order to be able to have the freedom to preach the gospel. In the same way that, back to the illustration, if you were having supper with the Muslim, you don't abstain from port because you somehow think that it's morally obligatory for you to do so. You do it for one reason, so that you don't cast a stumbling block and so that you're able to share the gospel. If you're ministering with someone and you know that they're a recovering alcoholic and you're trying to reach them with the gospel, you don't order an alcoholic beverage at the meal when you're trying to share the gospel with them. Why? Because you're going to put a stumbling block in front of them. So Paul abides by this same practice. We see him doing this in his ministry when he deals with Timothy and Titus, respectively. Paul had Timothy, who was born to a Jewish mother, circumcised, so that he could minister effectively among the Jews. Timothy did not have to be circumcised, but Timothy was to be Paul's travel companion. And we know that whenever Paul would go to a new city, he would first go into the synagogue. And so Paul, for wisdom's sake and for the the ability to better proclaim the gospel... He had Timothy circumcised. You think it's hard to get into the ministry today. But then when it comes to Titus, who was a pure Greek, Paul absolutely refused to have Titus circumcised. And he says so in Galatians 2. Paul says in Galatians 2 that he would not submit to the Judaizers, to the false brethren who were teaching that circumcision was required for salvation. There were those who were pressuring Paul saying, now Paul, you need to have Titus circumcised. You need to have Titus circumcised. And Paul says, no, I don't. He didn't have to have Timothy circumcised. But he, though he was free from all men, he made himself a servant to all. Therefore, we have to have this principle in mind because our course of action may be different in one situation than it is in the other. Uh, you know, we use the illustration about if you're ministering to, to uh, someone who's a recovering alcoholic, you don't order alcohol at the meal. I was listening to John Piper speak recently about a, a writing trip that he had in Germany. And there in Germany, now Piper is a teetotaler by, by his own practice. But he says there in Germany, it's so common and it's so prevalent that to not cause unnecessary offense, when he's at a big meal and they serve wine, he partakes of the wine. He's foregoing his Christian liberty to abstain so that he doesn't offend the brethren. That's the principle. So our course of action may be different as we follow this same principle because in each situation we have to evaluate what is going to bring the most glory to God, what is going to foster the most unity amongst the brethren, and what is going to give me the best opportunity to live out and spread the gospel. Paul makes his decisions to exercise or abstain from his liberty on those parameters. When he's among the Jews, that means conforming to their ceremonies. And this displays a crucial feature of Paul's ministry that all of us should learn from. Paul was a master of keeping the main thing the main thing. His goal was not to persuade the Jews that they didn't have to eat kosher anymore. He didn't go into the synagogue and say, I'm here with good news. You can eat pork now. No, he said, 
I'm here to tell you about Christ. I'm here to tell you about Christ. He didn't allow those secondary issues of culture and law-keeping and ethnicity to become a hindrance to his presentation of the gospel. How we need to learn from this. May we never allow our opinions and our preferences to become stumbling blocks that prevent us from sharing the gospel. Because you live in a melting pot. You're going to encounter people from all walks of life. And we all have a culture, and we all have a heritage, and we should rightly thank God for that. We never need to allow those things to become a hindrance in our sharing of the, go- of the gospel. Our goal is not to win people over to our culture. Our goal is not to win people over to our political views. Our goal is to win people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our goal, first and foremost, listen... Our goal is not to get people to stop sinning. Why do I say that? Because when you're ministering to that recovering alcoholic, your goal is not to tell him, now you need to quit drinking, you need to quit drinking. Your goal is to share Christ with him. And when we focus on all of these secondary issues, the only, the only thing that happens is that the focus is distracted away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we see Paul's accommodation to the Jews. But secondly, I want you to look at his accommodation to the Gentiles. Verse 21, he says, To them that are without the law, as without the law. When Paul is around the Jews, he keeps the ceremonial law. But when he's around the Gentiles, he doesn't. Same principle two different courses of action. Because what would have been a stumbling block for the Jews is a way of life for the Gentiles and what would be a stumbling block to the Gentiles is law for the Jews. So in order to reach the Gentiles, Paul becomes as a Gentile, as Gentile as he can be without violating Scripture. If he came to the Gentiles eating a kosher diet, observing the feast days, wearing the garb, That would have sent a very confusing message to the Gentiles. They would have looked at him and they would have thought, well, Paul, is this diet you're eating, is that part of this gospel you're preaching to us? Uh, These feast days that you're observing, if we are to come to Christ, does that mean that before we can come to Christ, we have to start observing these feast days? Paul didn't want anything to detract from the presentation of Christ. But he's very quick to add this qualifying statement. We'll do a little bit of do a little bit of hermeneutics here. Notice he says, to them that are without the law, as without the law, King James has this in parentheses, being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ. What is Paul saying? He's saying that he's not completely lawless when he's among the Gentiles. What he says is that he becomes as them who are without the law. So we need to ask the question, in what sense are the Gentiles without the law? Well, he cannot be talking about the moral law, the moral aspects of the law, because the moral aspects of the law are written upon the heart. He's not an antinomian. He's not lawless when he comes to the Gentiles. In what sense are the Gentiles without the law? They're without the positive ceremonial law. The Gentiles know nothing about a kosher diet. They know nothing about feast days. They know nothing about new moons. They know nothing about Sabbaths. When he he goes to the Gentiles, he behaves as one who is free from the ceremonial aspects of the law, which were a shadow of the coming Messiah, but he keeps the moral aspects of the law as a Christian. That's what he says. Being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ. As a Christian, are you free from the law? Yes. As a Christian, are you under the law? Yes. As a Christian, are you free from the law? No. As a Christian, are you under the law? No. The point of this sermon is not to explain our relationship to the law, but I do want you to understand that Paul was, Paul was very specific 
in that when he came to the Gentiles, he didn't behave as if there were absolutely no moral principles whatsoever. He, he recognized that God has eternal, immutable moral law that's written in creation. It's written upon the heart. You don't need a Bible to know that murdering is wrong. The Gentiles knew thou shalt not steal. They knew thou shalt not kill. They knew thou shalt not commit adultery. But what they didn't know is thou shalt not sow two different seeds in the same field, for that's a trespass against the law of God. They didn't know that. And so when Paul went to them, he behaved as one who didn't know it either. What Paul is saying is that even though he is aware of the ceremonial law, when he's ministering to the Gentiles, he completely disregards it. Because his goal is not to turn Gentiles into Jews. His goal is to reach Gentiles with the gospel. <clears throat> Again, Paul teaches us an important lesson. I'm afraid that some organizations today that call themselves mission organizations, parachurch organizations, I'm afraid that some of them are more concerned with making the nations American than they are with making the nations Christian. Missions is not exporting our culture. Missions is exporting the gospel. Therefore, we must be careful not to let the church, when I say that, I mean this church, be defined by any particular culture. We're not a Jewish church. We're not a Gentile church. We're not a white church. We're not a Southern church. We're not a Republican church. We're a gospel church. By God's grace, no culture, not yours, not mine, will ever take the preeminence of the gospel in the ministry of this church. And if there are aspects of our culture that are not sinful, that are fine to enjoy, we do that. But if they begin to hinder our ability to reach others with the gospel, we set them to the side. Gladly, we set them aside. We don't hold on to them with some type of tight, prideful grip. Well, if they don't like it, too bad. It's not what Paul said. Not, it wasn't what Jesus said. So that Christ may be preached without limitation. To the Jews he becomes as a Jew. To the Gentiles he becomes as a Gentile. There's one final group that Paul mentions. Verse 22. <clears throat> Notice he says in verse 22. To the weak became I as weak. That I might gain the weak. Thus far Paul has focused his accommodations to lost people outside of the church. And it is true that we as Christians, I don't know if you're, you're aware of this, but apart from a, a miraculous movement of God, lost people aren't lining up to hear you preach the gospel to them. Okay, you have to go to them. That's your calling. And some of us will sit around and we'll pray, Lord, give me the opportunity to witness to someone today. Well, you have... Countless opportunities to witness to people every day. Start praying, Lord, help me to be obedient to the opportunities that you lay in front of me. <laughs> you don't have to look very long to find a lost person that needs the gospel. The question is, when you find them, are you going to go and share it with them? If you're, if you're sitting around waiting for some lost person to come up to you and grab you by the shirt collar and say, please share the gospel with me, you, you might never evangelize. <laughs> So Paul says, I accommodate myself. I go to them. I go to the Jews. I become like them. I try to live so that they will, will listen to what I have to say. And then I share the gospel with them. And then I go to the Gentiles. And when I go to the Gentiles, I behave like them. I, I, I live in such a way as to not draw offense. And I share the gospel with them. But now... 
verse 22, Paul shifts his focus to demonstrate that he not only limits his liberties for the sake of reaching the lost, but he limits his liberties and becomes a servant to the weaker brother within the church. That's who he's talking about in verse 22. To the weak. Well, what, what has he been talking about in this whole section about meats offered to idols and Christian liberties? He's, he's drawn this parallel between the weaker brother and the stronger brother. With the weak, Paul's concern is not about their salvation. Because they're a brother in Christ, in the church. His concern is about their spiritual growth into a deeper understanding of the gospel. That's what he means by gaining the weak. He wants to gain them, not offend them, not belittle them, not demean them, not enter into an argument with them and show them how smart he is. No, he wants to gain them so that they grow in Christ and become strong. <clears throat> Paul is demonstrating a maturity and a humility that is so lacking in the church today. Steve Lawson says this, when Paul met people, he was not like so many Christians today who want to immediately find the point of difference and drive a wedge and want to enter into an argument or a debate. That is nothing but rank immaturity and arrogance. I get it. Debate and, and pushback can be fun. And sometimes it's, it's enjoyable when, you, when you're talking with a brother and you have a doctrinal disagreement and you go back and forth. That can be fun. And iron sharpens iron. I get it. But there's something spiritually unhealthy about you if you get some kind of sadistic joy and how many people can I get in a fight with today? When Paul ministered to a weaker brother, he sought points of agreement. He sought places of common ground so that he could build a bridge and connect with them. Paul's ministry was not dry and esoteric. Paul's ministry was very deep, very personal, very heartfelt. He was way more interested about reaching the heart than he was just reaching the brain with knowledge. And he was very careful not to wound their consciences with this liberty. Do you remember what Paul said at the end of chapter 8? Paul said at the end of chapter 8, I'll just read it for you. <coughs> Verse 10, he says, For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Remember how Paul taught us that we can use our liberties to cause offense and we can actually be the means of someone's apostasy? What is he saying then here in verse 22 of chapter 9? What he's presenting is the proper way to relate to the weaker brother. Don't beat them down and cause them to stumble and don't lay a trap in front of them, but rather go to them where they are and come alongside them and encourage them and build them up and edify them and exercise patience and self-control and love and not an insatiable desire for the weaker brother to know how right you are. That's what he's saying. Paul doesn't say to the weak... I really become strong and show them how strong I am. He says, to the weak, I become as weak. I go to where they are. I try to understand them. I try to relate to them. I empathize with them. I look at them and I say, you know, I was there too once. This should revolutionize the way we look at new people when they come into the church. What's the number one reason that people give for... for Visiting a church and not coming back. There was no connection. They, 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 they talked over me as if I wasn't there. I didn't understand anything they were saying. Why should we expect someone who has no background in church, who, who is a Christian for a relatively short amount of time, why should we expect them to just come in and plug right in and just 
as if they were a believer for the last 30 years. Unless we start thinking how high and mighty we are, we need to remember, that was us. That was you. Some of you, that was you six months ago. That was you a year ago. This is the essence of Christianity. It's not sitting around and stargazing at our five-point navels. It's treating others as Christ treated us. When Christ came to you, he didn't come to you and make you feel so guilty for how dumb you are and how unholy you are and how wretched you are and beat you down and bash you over the head with the law and remind you that you're just not as good as he is. No, he came to you with conviction of sin, with hope, with promise of salvation. And he didn't take you from where you should have been. He took you from where you are. And he dug you out of a pit and he set your feet upon a rock and he put a song in your mouth and he began to nurture you and feed you and clothe you and love you. That's how we need to treat the weak to the weak became I as weak. And all of us are weak in some areas, by the way. All of us are the weaker brother. And in those areas when I'm weak, I don't want you to treat me like you just won the world's strongest Christian contest. I don't want you to treat me that way. I don't want you to beat me down. I want you to be kind to me. Be compassionate to me in those areas when I'm weak. And that's how you want me to treat you in the areas where you're weak. Sometimes I feel like we're just belaboring 101 lessons for Christianity, but I see this. It's so common in our day and age. We wonder why the church has lost its power. We wonder why we wonder why Christianity is where it is. Look at the way Christians treat each other. It's appalling. Look at the way we treat those that are showing interest in the gospel. You have someone that's, that's showing interest in church, showing interest in the Bible, showing interest in Christianity, and you begin to pick them apart. You're like Jonah. You need to really search your heart if you find yourself in such a, such a state. Because in your mind, if, you, if you're really to go to them and to minister to them, that might mean stepping out of your comfort zone. And you don't want to do that. You're too good for that. Well, he doesn't look like us. Well, she doesn't dress like us. Or they come from a different background than we do. And if we're going to minister to them, and if we're going to share the gospel to them, that, that might mean we have to, to tolerate being in the presence of things that we don't like. And we're not willing to do that. We're too good for that. Paul, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, was arguably the most godly man that ever walked the earth. And all that godliness and all that holiness, and he still said, I become all things to all men. To the weak, I become as weak. Paul wasn't too good for it. Why are you? He says, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Paul's disposition flies in the face of our selfish and self-centered generation. Too many of us are only willing to serve God when it's comfortable. We'll share the gospel when it's convenient for us. Let me encourage you to get out of your comfort zone. Alter your normal course of action. Endure some things that you don't like. Notice this. Paul understood that lost people were not going to come to, come to him. He was going to have to take the gospel to them. And he wanted to eliminate as many hindrances as possible. Not only did Paul exemplify this, but there's no greater demonstration of this practice than in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews 7.26 says, For such an high priest became us. Became us. Because we could not go to where he is. He came to us. Could Jesus have said, when, when, when the Father said, I have elected to save a people for my own name. Jesus could have said, well, you better find somebody else to go and save them because I'm too good for them. I'm not going to condescend to where they are and veil myself in flesh and live among them. How humiliating! Indeed it was. That's exactly what he did. He identified with us. He was, the Bible says, touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He understood us. And he laid aside his rights. And he laid aside his liberties in order to minister to us. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to others and to give his life a ransom for many. Notice that that Paul said, he becomes all things to all men that he might by all means save some. Paul knew, Paul knew that that he would condescend and he would accommodate himself to many people that would continue in their unbelief and ultimately reject the gospel. And he didn't respond by saying, well, what's the use? Why should I go out of my way to to reach people with the gospel when many of them are just going to reject me? Why should I care about laying aside my rights? God's going to save who God's going to save. I'm just going to enjoy myself. Now, Paul was of this mindset. And I pray to God that you are too. If sinners die and go to hell, it won't be because he didn't do everything he could possibly do to reach them with the gospel. lost person in your family lost co-worker that you're, you're praying about and that you're trying to minister to vow that vow in your heart today that if they go to hell they're going to have to go to hell with you clinging to them repent and believe the gospel trust in Christ come to Jesus We need to do all that we can do to spread the gospel to every creature and leave the results to God. This is Paul's practice. He becomes all things to all men that he might have greater opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does believe and he does trust that through his efforts, God will save some. (coughs) Thirdly, the purpose. Why was Paul willing to concede his liberties and subject himself to others despite being free in Christ? Now, we know uh, that that he does that in order to spread the gospel. Uh, Some may accuse him of catering, right, to to others in order to gain a following. And although there are so-called gospel ministers who who pattern their behavior to be well-esteemed by the world, Paul had a much different reason. He says in verse 22, Three, and this I do. So look at verse, look at verse nineteen. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself a servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Verse twenty-three. And this I do. That's the this. And this I do for the gospel's sake. For Paul, the gospel was not just a one, two, three, repeat after me message that gets people saved. For Paul, the gospel was not just an elevator speech that played a relatively minor role in his overall ministry. The gospel was the driving force and the central theme behind everything he did. He made all of his decisions by asking two simple questions. What would bring the most glory to God? What would give the greatest furtherance to the gospel? This I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. When he says this, he isn't speaking of partaking in the salvation of the gospel. He's already doing that. What what he's saying is that he wants to be more deeply involved. He wants to more deeply participate in the spread of the gospel here on earth. Nothing was more important to him than being used of God to accomplish the redemption of his people. 
Everything else paled in comparison to this great task. Paul lived his life with eternity stamped upon his eyeballs. And if you were to ask him, Paul, what is your great purpose on this earth? Why do you live your life? He would tell you that I might preach the gospel to as many people as God gives me liberty to do so. May we too see the propagation of the gospel as our great mission. That's our mission. Other things happen as a result of that. Society improves when the gospel flourishes. Lives change when the gospel flourishes. But our ultimate purpose is not to change society. Our ultimate purpose is not to save the culture. Our ultimate purpose is is not uh, to, to change the way people live their lives. Or the way they vote. Our ultimate purpose is to proclaim the gospel. And as we proclaim the gospel, and as God empowers that proclamation, all of those benefits that I just named will begin to take place. May we see everything else as secondary and the gospel as primary. Your job, all of you, your job is to spread the gospel. You just sell homes on the side. You just work for the Department of Transportation on the side. You just weld on the side. You just do maintenance on the side. But your job... Your calling is to preach the gospel. And fulfilling this great responsibility. It may call us to leave our comfort zones. It may call us to set aside our liberty. May we do that. Gladly may we do that. And may we embrace the paradox of the Christian life. Yes, we have freedom in Christ. But that freedom lays a debt to the world upon our shoulders. For we didn't earn this freedom. We didn't buy this freedom. We're not to be stingy with this freedom. We want others to share in this freedom. So may we do whatever it takes to tell others how they too can be freed. Freed from sin. Freed from condemnation. And free in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us do this for the sake of the gospel. Our reward is in the service. It's a responsibility, but it's also a privilege. Because in the that service to the world, we have the privilege of becoming partakers of the gospel with the world. Whether it's a Jew under the law, a Gentile without the law, our neighbor down the street, or a weaker brother in our own church, let us go to them and become as they are, that we might gain them, that we might win them for the glory of God, for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us. Lord, I ask that you would take this text and apply it to my heart. Lord, how many times do I fail to serve you in the opportunities that you give me because it would require me to leave my comforts? Oh God, help us to not idolize our liberties, but help us to to desire to do nothing above serving you. Use us, use this church to preach the gospel. May we be people of the gospel. May the words of Jesus Christ and the good news of his salvation be on the tip of our tongues as we go out and about, ready to share and ready to tell. We thank you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.